Presidings Podcast is brought to you by Northrop Grumman. Northrop Grumman applies electromagnetic maneuver warfare to seamlessly target and combat enemy threats across any domain. By leveraging traditional spectrum-based and next-generation innovations, they're giving your forces a decisive advantage. That's why they're a leader in transformative airborne EW. To learn more, visit northropgrumman.com slash EW. Welcome to the Proceedings Podcast. I'm Ward Carroll, the Director of Outreach and Marketing at the Naval Institute. Joining me is my co-host, Bill Hamlet, the Editor-in-Chief of Proceedings Magazine. Here we are, Day 2, Episode 2 at Tailhook Live. It's fantastic, and the energy is really coming up here. We're about to do the Bug Roach Mixer, which is uh, one of the highlights of Tailhook every year. Yeah, it's night and day compared to yesterday. I yeah, mean, the number of people, busier. especially the number of flight suits here on the floor, right? I mean, people are... The reunion is going on. The JOs are in. I mean, there's hundreds of flight suits here, lots yeah. of lieutenants, and, and it's great. And and we just had a drive-by with Admiral Aquilino, who's the uh, PAC fleet commander. Yeah, and he's incognito. He's in, he was really low-key. Shorts and a black shirt. Yeah. Nothing that says well, Admiral. You haven't even seen him yet, Pops, I haven't huh? even seen him. Yeah. No, that, 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 that sounds about right. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. So he and I flew an F-16N together. That's a, uh, he's Actually, his name is in my logbook. When he was at VF. 43, okay. and I was uh, the editor of Approach Magazine. It was my first shore duty. It was yes, actually my second shore duty, but that's a long story. So but, let's, uh, let's introduce our guest. So yeah, how about uh, it? Yeah. <laughs> so our guest for this episode is Commander Pops Papayano, who uh, is one of the co-authors of the fifth, or sorry, the fourth article in the Top Gun package in the September issue of Proceedings. So it's called Top Gun's Impact by, by uh, Pops and by Mr. Brad Elward, who's writing a book about Top Gun, the history yep. of Top Gun. So I met him yesterday. He's here uh, out at the other end of the floor. Yeah, he came great, by great day guy. one. Yeah. Oh, yeah. yeah. He's very knowledgeable. So, Pops, thanks for coming on the show. Absolutely. And, and uh, you um, moderated the panel conversation yesterday about the history of Top Gun. So mm-hmm. uh, what's going on? And you just gave over uh, command of, of N7, or mm-hmm. Top Gun, and now you're at strike at Nautic. So tell our listeners a little bit about the difference between those two jobs. Okay, so uh, so Top Gun, uh, obviously Navy Fighter Weapons School, Top Gun, everybody knows what it is. Uh, you know, being the CEO there, we, we are focused on graduating instructors, SFTIs, uh, and, and developing our own on-staff instructors and everything else. Um, but it, it's very focused on the VFA community solely, uh, on the F-18. We're obviously going into the F-35, so we're starting to develop those tactics and, and how we're going to build that course and so forth. Um, and uh, moving over to Strike, Strike is now not focused just on the VFA on the fighter side. We're focused on fighter, EA, you know, electronic attack. We're focused on the VAW community, uh, the Hilo community, the uh, uh, um, maritime patrol community. I mean, all of it. How does the carrier wing as well as the carrier strike group come together to actually wage conflict? So Strike U is that... That's that's air wing training, right? Yep. That's yep. that's your responsibility now. Yep. Okay. And yeah. you're about to pin on 06? Uh, yeah, sometime next year. Okay. Yeah. <laughs> Congratulations. Thanks. Thanks. Yeah, that's fantastic. So to do a little history, Strike U was created in the wake of the Bacaw Valley mm-hmm. disaster. So let's, let's 1983? Is that when it was? I think it was, yeah. 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 So not unlike the creation of Top Gun based on a, a poor kill ratio, this was it was created based on uh, poor performance 
uh, of doing uh, strike warfare in uh, in and around Lebanon. Mm-hmm. And I remember I, my first Fallon, I was a Nugget in VF-32, and Strike U was literally that little cinder block white building, right? And yeah. then came back later when I was a Super J.O. and it had become full-fledged NSOC, yeah. which was sort of much more Gucci. Um, and uh, so anyway, explain what... what what created Strike You? Maybe I just did that, but uh, <laughs> um, just sort of a quick history of Strike. Uh, well, you talked about the beginnings. You know, in from from my time, you know, the first time I came up to Fallon was, gosh, twenty years ago almost, uh, and it, it was it was strictly focused on Airwing Fallon, as Bill said. You know, going through that four week Airwing Fallon syllabus where we integrate the entire Airwing. Um, nowadays, it's it's expanded quite a bit. I mean, we truly look at all of the capabilities you have in a carrier strike group and talk about how do we integrate those capabilities, how do we coordinate those capabilities across the entire kill chain from find, fix, all the way to engage and assess. Um, how do we bring those powers to and the, that force together to uh, to win at the end of the day? And you know, you talked about kind of the humble beginnings of strike. And the small building it was in, you know, the, the building today is a large headquarters building. Um, we're actually expanding that from one building to three buildings. We're going to have an entire secure facility where we're going to uh, uh, run events as well as debrief events. And then we're going to have a whole other building that's going to be an integrated training facility where we're going to have some simulators for all the platforms. Uh, we're going to integrate some of those capabilities with what's going on in the range. We're going to do pre-mission events in, there, in the simulators. Uh, we're really expanding how we train and prepare an airwing for deployment. How big is the staff there? So, so for Top Gun, mm-hmm. you had a staff of how many? Uh, about thirty-five total. That's the, just the instructors. Yeah, that was okay. just the instructors and, and maintainers, et cetera. Is that all part of Top Gun, or is that separate? That's totally separate. Okay, yep. so this, the Top Gun staff, your those who who uh, answered to you mm-hmm. was about thirty-five total. Yeah. Okay. Yep. And now at Strike U at Strike. How many people in your department? It's about fifty total. Okay. Because um, you know I've got I've got about thirty or so that are focused strictly on Airwing Fallon um, and strictly on on what Strike's normal mission is. Uh, and then on top of that, I've got about another fifteen to twenty that are focused on JCAS, uh, Joint Close Air Support. Um, and and so we bring in special warfare guys. We train them in how to be a joint terminal uh, attack controller, uh, how to go down range, whether we're talking Afghanistan, Iraq, Syria. Um, and actually coordinate from the ground, join fires from the air. Um, and so we put those guys through right now another four-week syllabus as well. So I've got a number of Navy SEALs, retired SEALs that work for me, um, and they're doing all of the soft integration training that we do with the Air Wings. That's so, very cool. Um, if people aren't familiar with Fallon, d- describe the advantages of that facility mm-hmm. and, and why, why is, is Fallon what it is and, you know, what do we do there? Yeah. Why do we pick that that? <laughs> Uh, why, why is the Navy in the desert, in Nevada, yeah, right? yeah. the high desert? And, and, and there's, there's an amplifier there. It's a desert. It's in the middle of nowhere, truly. Yeah. Um, it, it really is the rain space. You know, we have the ability to um, sort of replicate any, any environment on the ground that we need uh, to get air wings ready for wherever they go in the world once they go on deployment, wherever conflict arises. Um, so we have a lot of rain space out in the desert. Uh, there's very little, very few people out there. I mean, we're, we're putting uh, upwards of 40 aircraft sometimes in the range, and they're all fighting, and some are going supersonic and some are not. And, and uh, you know, th- there are no noise complaints that go on out here. Uh, and so that's kind of the nice part is it allows us to truly train like we we're going to fight in theater 
um, without having to worry about disturbing. Are, know, are we public. still worried about the airways that border and? and, uh, and <laughs> I yeah. remember that was like yeah the spillouts yeah yeah that, the spillouts yeah. were like you know threat of death if you spilled out yeah that's still the threat of death okay. today okay. yeah in fact uh, we just kicked off an air wing about two weeks ago and I gave them that threat on day one okay. uh, they still happen you know guys get uh, involved in the scenario a little too much and they they lose sight of where they're actually at and all of a sudden they're out of the airspace by a mile or two but we we typically have about uh, uh, gosh five or six um, folks that are on the ground watching the events real time to, to make sure people are staying where they are, making sure they're safe and so forth. So it, it rarely happens, but we do get spillouts every once in a while. So there's an air wing fouling going on right now? There is, yeah. Did you, did you guys hit a pause button for tail hook? We did, yeah. We slowed it down just for today. So you talked about kind of the the uh, increase in people here today. I mean, a lot of that is CAG-11, who we've got going through air wing fouling right now. And um, you know, th- this to me, and, and you guys have seen this before, but Friday is really when tailhook starts. That's when the reunion really occurs. That's absolutely yeah. true. Yeah. Yeah. Earlier today, we had two surface warfare officers from mm-hmm. the, I think it was Bunker Hill? The Bunker Hill, yeah. Uh, who are here. I think they're here for part of that air wing Fallon, yep. right? And so that gets to the point of, you made about integration, right? Integrating a carrier strike, not just the air wing, mm-hmm. but the, the all the capabilities of a carrier strike group, right? So... Has, has Fallon changed a lot over the last, you know, five to ten years to to more incorporate, you know, what you've got in terms of the surface warfare community, what they bring to the air warfare fight? We, we have. Uh, we, we actually have some surface warfare community officers on the staff at Strike. Um, so we have some internal expertise. And then uh, if you remember yesterday we talked on the panel, it was actually, I think it was in relation to your question, uh, we talked a little bit about uh, the integrated air defense course that we put through, and that's really where we get some good training with the surface community, um, where we bring them in for a week and, and we uh, put them through some scenarios and the trainers um, and force them to work with the with the air wing, with the, the fighter guys that are out downrange in the lanes trying to protect the care strike group or doing whatever they're doing. Um, we're forcing the surface community guys to actually work with them. Uh, and and it's, it's integration at a level that we've never had in naval aviation before. Um, and it's, it's something that just started a few years ago. We're building on it every single time we do it. Um, and, uh, you know, we're, we're trying to take it to that level where we're not only focused on getting the air wing good and ready for deployment, we're focused on getting the CSG good and ready for deployment. So we're really trying to kind of expand our reach as much as we can. Talk to me a little bit about live virtual and, and combined training, right? Mm-hmm. So, I mean, a lot of happens out here that's live that you can only do in Fallon because of the range range space, because of the airspace space that you've got, right? Mm-hmm. But in, in terms of the virtual side of things, has that been amped up at Fallon over the last, you know, five, ten years? Do you guys have now the ability to virtually insert a cruiser or insert the, mm-hmm. the, the other parts of the strike group that aren't the air wing? But we don't yet. Um, okay. we, we, it's definitely where we need to go. Um, but uh, we don't quite have the capability yet. We're actually uh, we're spending a lot of time these days talking about uh, live, live virtual constructed. Um, there's a lot. There's a programmer record out there. There's other folks in the industry that want to take part in this. So we're really just trying to step back and understand what are all the capabilities that we can use for an LVC environment um, and, and what is the best way to go forward with it. But it is, it is the training of the future. There is no doubt. Um, when you can put out, especially when we're range space limited, when we can put out constructive or virtual uh, contacts out there, we can really get down to some uh, some large force training and do things differently. We can truly put the air wing into an environment that they're literally going to see in combat today and, and make that training as deeply embedded as possible uh, with LVC. So we're excited about the capability. We just we haven't gotten there yet, but we're using it on the range yet. Have we deliberately changed the scenarios in recent years to reflect a change from 
the asymmetric fight, the post-9-11 fight, mm-hmm. to the return-to-peer conflict? Have we we, we have. Doing that? Yeah, there, there's a big shift uh, focusing on you know the great power competition that we're in today. Um, we, it, we still... So, so how, do, how do we do that specifically? More, more bandits than before, more air-to-air, a more robust air-to-air mm-hmm. threat. I mean, how does that manifest itself in terms of what the air wing will see during the course of doing their air wing fouling? Yeah, so, you know, different from the air wings that, that you grew up with and that I grew up with up until today, um, the, the adversaries are replicating higher capabilities. Uh, they're replicating uh, more evolved tactics uh, from the adversary side. Um, and like you said, we're, we're putting much more, many more adversaries out on the range as well to, uh, to uh, kind of replicate the numbers that we would expect in those kind of fights. Um, so, yeah, we, we, we've made a big shift to focusing on near-peer and peer adversaries that are out there today. Um, now, that's not to say that we've forgotten entirely about what's going on in, in Fifth Fleet and Afghanistan, Iraq, and Syria. We're, we're still very focused on that. We still make sure the air wings are trained and ready to execute that fight. But at the end of the day... You know, for, for us in the air, for naval aviation, while that is a complicated flight in the Middle East, it's not, uh, it, it's not as difficult as the peer threat or the near peer threat that we have to train to. So uh, the percentage that we're training to the peer threat is much higher, but we'll make sure out the door that they're ready to go execute in Syria or Iraq or Afghanistan. And is that on-call close air support mostly or what? Yeah. Like yeah. nine lines and, and, and the, the dynamics of close air support, yeah. is that yeah. primarily what we would do? With respect to that theater, yep, yep, okay. and, and in that theater, the big difference is that's a permissive environment for us. So, you know, you don't you don't launch off the boat going into Iraq or Syria, wondering if you're going to come back at the end of that flight. Um, you know, it, totally different for the guys on the ground. It's worth saying this. You know, it, while it's a permissive fight for us in the air over the top at you know eighteen twenty thousand feet or where we're at, for the guys that are on the ground, that is a high end fight. There's no doubt. Um, but but for us, it's a permissive environment, and we just need to make sure that <coughs> excuse me, the guys have the uh, the techniques down and the capabilities down to to go down there and put bombs exactly where the guys on the ground need them, um, but it's you know while you still need to train to that, it's not nearly as complicated as training to a peer adversary where you know that that takes years to get an individual good enough to go fight that fight. So when air wings get back, do you fuse their learnings into the syllabus, and how quickly can you iterate in that way? Um, so let's say you know I, I'm I'm doing a Westpac and. And during a bilateral or whatever, or even maybe some real-world testing, they saw something that maybe they didn't see during their Fallon debt, mm-hmm. you know, and maybe this becomes a trend. Did, how, how, how much feedback do you get from uh, uh, an airway when they get back? Like, you know, when Lincoln Strike Group gets back yeah. pretty soon, mm-hmm. um, do, is there an official process with where they outbrief with you, or how does that go? Uh, there is an official process, not necessarily directly with, with Nautic or Strike or Top Gun even. Uh, but there's an official lessons learned process that we'll tie ourselves into. And, and if we have any questions, we'll certainly reach out to that strike group or that carrier air wing uh, to make sure we understand. But for the most part, we, we stay pretty tied into what they're doing when they're downrange as well. Um, and that's another element of uh, whether we're talking Top Gun, we're talking Strike, or we're talking Nautic as a whole is, uh, you know, we have to have what we're calling right now this tailorable expertise where if an air wing or a strike group is downrange and they need advice on something or they need help on something, whether that's mission planning, targeteering, uh, weaponeering, whatever the case may be, it's we're a phone call away. And we will really literally rally the forces on call. It doesn't matter if it's in the middle of the night. We'll bring in all of Nautic if we need to uh, to support those forces downrange. So we, we do stay tied in quite a bit with them even while they're out there. So yesterday in the panel discussion, the history of Top Gun, 
one of the things that was interesting, and, and I, I caught some of this as I was editing the section in Top Gun on the, on the, in the proceedings uh, September issue, but the uh, speakers talked about the uh, adversary aircraft that they added through the years, right? Mm -hmm. So the A-4s were first, and then the, A the uh, F-5s came in, and then uh, around 1987 is when the F-16 was added, right? Yeah. But we haven't had a new adversary aircraft since the F-16, and that was 32 years ago. Yeah. So how do you guys simulate the real high-end threat now, uh, SU-27s, et cetera, right, yep. uh, with an aircraft that is 30 years old, 32 years old? Uh, I will tell you it's not easy. Um, we, we need a new adversary platform. Uh, we, we don't have the capabilities on these airplanes. I mean, we're, we're flying Legacy Charlies. Which is a fantastic platform. I mean, it's 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 been a great airplane for the Navy. F-18Cs. Um, yeah, yeah. F-18Cs. Uh, you know, but they're getting old, and the part supply system is, is getting strained to keep them going. We do have a, a few uh, F-18 Super Hornets on the flight line that we use. And so between those two, we can kind of replicate some of the, the high-end adversary capabilities. The F-16s, I mean, those are Block 15s. They're the oldest F-16s out there. Wow. And, and we just can't replicate too much. I mean, we can get up and we can get up high. We can go fast. But when you're talking about its ability to uh, detect a blue fighter, shoot a blue fighter, all those things, we just can't do it with that airplane anymore. Uh, and that's a big problem. You know, if we're training to a peer adversary or a near peer adversary, we need to be able to replicate those capabilities. And so we, we've been in a lot of talks with OPNAV, folks out of the Pentagon, um, about what is the next generation adversary? How do we get to a point where we can actually replicate those capabilities? Uh, and certainly LVC is going to be a part of that. But at the end of the day, you still need to put steel airborne. Uh, so you can't you can't make it all virtual or constructive. It, you've got to have some uh, folks up there flying the airplanes, making the decisions just like an adversary would be, and actually getting to emerge with blue airplanes and fighting it out at the merge, as we would do in combat. Um, so there's got to be the right balance there, and and um, we're we're working towards that. We're trying to figure out what is that next generation adversary platform that we need. But we do need it. It's it's you know as you saw yesterday, those platforms we've been replicating capabilities that went back to the 80s and 70s in some cases with those platforms and we're still trying to do that today and it just doesn't work yeah so uh coming out of the flag panel that i was just sitting in a lot of discussions a lot of questions about talent management in the navy right and within naval aviation and yep. we talked a little bit about this with uh, proton about how the fitness fitness report system is now 22 years old yeah. the current one right and, and you have just finished command of top gun which has got to be the most high-octane group of, of <laughs> lieutenants in naval aviation. Yep. How do you manage that talent when you've got, uh, you know, the best of the best of the best, and you've got, what, 30 of them? Uh, how how yeah. do you decide who, who is the EP, who's the best the, the best of the best, right? In, within yeah, I mean, how, do we, you, how do you do manage Do we wind that? up eating our young? Exactly. Yeah, yeah. Or is there some way to account for the fact that they're at Top Gun? Yeah. And so if you're a pack, even a pack minus guy, it's not like being at VT whatever and being a pack minus well, it, And that's exactly it. So we just, you know, you, you get creative with our fit reps and, and you cycle them out so that at the end of the day, you know, everybody's taken care of. Um, so it, it's not too hard to manage it from a career standpoint um, and make sure everybody gets the, the ticket that they need going out the door. Um, as far as leading them, uh, it's... It's it, the hardest thing is honestly staying out of their way. As being you know being the Top Gun CEO, you just want to you're trying to pave the road out in front of them. You're trying to be the voice when their voice isn't carrying it for them. You're you're doing some of their battles for them and, and just trying to stay out of the way and keep up with them the entire time. That was the biggest challenge by far. There were some jokes about the uh, 
the, the briefing or the, the murder board process, yeah. Yeah. right? As a Top Gun instructor comes in, joins the staff, and becomes a SME, subject matter expert on a particular thing, air-to-air tactics, basic fighter maneuver, air-to-ground, whatever it is, right? Mm-hmm. That, they, that they strip that brief down to the studs and rebuild it. And they become the expert. And then there's a murder board before they are qualified to be the briefer uh, on that subject. Yep. And, and everybody joked about that process and how, you know, sweat producing it is, right? Yep. W- what was that like for you when you were a JO, but then also as you were a CO of the school, you know, mm-hmm. taking it from a different perspective, right? Yeah. So, uh, you know, as a, as a JO, and, and if you ask any Top Gun instructor, I don't, I don't care what era they were from. Uh, since we started doing murder boards, if you ask any of them, was that the most difficult thing you've ever done professionally in your life? Uh, I 100% guarantee you they will all say yes. Um, that That is how difficult that process is. Um, but, but I'll talk you a little bit through, you know, my, my JL one, uh, it was a six part lecture. It took me about, it was about five and a half hours from beginning to end. Um, I had uh, four combat systems that I instructed, uh, plus some tactics uh, that went along with it. Uh, I spent probably, if I remember right, it was about two to three months just getting smart, just going visiting industry. No kidding. And when I say smart, not just understanding the system, but understanding it down to the engineering level details. I mean, you truly understand it as well as the guys that are building those those combat systems. Um, so that's how smart you have to get. And as you're doing that, the, the key to success is as you're learning about it and thinking about it, you're trying to develop your own story for how you're going to teach it. Because the last thing you want to do is teach it the same way or use the same slides that the guy before you uh, used. So you're, you're really sort of building this story in your head for how you want to tell the story about the, these combat systems or the tactics or whatever you've got. Um, and then you start building the PowerPoint slides. Uh, and then uh, you start doing what we call pre-board zeros or talking to, talking to chairs uh, where it's just you in the classroom and you're just clicking through slides. You're getting comfortable with what you want to say on each of the bullets and so forth and, and everything. And and then you start doing pre-boards where you have two to three instructors in the room and you're going to give the lecture just like you were going to give it to the class. And uh, throughout the entire process, they're going to critique you on overall organization. How did everything flow together from the big stuff down to the small stuff? They're going to critique you on teaching and learning. How were your metaphors? How was your speech? Were you too fast or too slow? Were you talking too loud or too soft? Were you moving around on the stage too much? Were your hands a distraction? Uh, I mean, truly. I mean, every... you, you guys do things like okay, no jewelry. Oh yeah. Right. What are yeah. some of the the things? Because this could apply to business as well, right? If you're a marketing person or doing a pitch meeting, mm-hmm. what were some of the basics of that? Uh, well, it, you know, we would be either in a flight suit or, or khakis, so you didn't have to worry too much about it. We could still wear a watch and all that kind of stuff, but it, it really got to the point of you know the, there couldn't be any distractions when you were up on stage, and whether that came from what you were wearing or how you were conducting yourself, if it was a distraction, you were going to hear about it. Um, and, and so they, they critiqued you on, on literally everything, how you transition from bullet to bullet, how you transition from slide to slide. It all had to be a seamless thing. You would never, ever hear in a Top Gun lecture, okay, now that we've talked about this, let's talk about this, or next we're going to talk about this. It all had to be a seamless story from the moment you stood up there on the stage and started talking all the way till you were done. And uh, so you, you go through these pre-boards, and there's eight total. And uh, about the first five pre-boards, typically the debriefs would be as long as it took to give, give the lecture. Uh, so I mentioned mine was about five and a half hours. My debrief was about five and a half hours for the first four or five of those. So that's an 11-hour process. Um, and uh, then ultimately, as you get through the eight pre-boards, then you go to the murder board. And now the murder boards, you have the entire staff in there. And this is game day. This is the game day of game days. This is our version of the Super Bowl. 
And uh, it, it was funny. I, I still remember this clearly to, the, to this day. Uh, walking down as I'm getting ready to start my murder board and I walk down on the stage and I fade down the music and even the fade has to be not too fast, not too slow. It's got to be perfect. Uh, but there's, somebody's going to take notes on it if you, if you mess that up. Uh, but uh, fade down the music and I look up and I click in my first line. I look at the, look at the crowd and I'm looking at 35 people that are literally standing, sitting at their desk, at the desk and uh, they've got pen in hand. It's already touching paper, and they're just waiting for you to screw up. And you will make a mistake because everybody makes a mistake. And you'll see 35 heads simultaneously go down and furiously start writing. And you just got to throw that over the shoulder and just be like, all right, I'll, I'll hear about that one later, whatever that was. Um, but, but really, the, the other hard thing about it was, and probably the most difficult as- aspect of it was, you were never allowed to look back at the slides. So you had to have every bullet on every slide memorized. You had to have the slide order memorized. If there was ever a slide peak, is what we called it. If uh, if you were having, if you were killing the murder board, like literally doing a fantastic job, and you had one slide peak, you may pass. If you had two slide peaks, you were done. It was going to be a failure. Wow. Uh, so it was it was wow. a very very demanding process, you know. And as I mentioned, my first one was six parts. I had 386 slides in in that lecture, and I had all 386 slides memorized, the order memorized. I had quotes in there that I had to have 100% memorized verbatim. Uh, so it was it was a difficult difficult process, and then when I came back as a CEO, um, you you get a lecture as a CEO as well. It's it's a very specific lecture called the Patch Lecture, um, where you talk about kind of it's it's the last last lecture of the class. You actually give it on the last day of the course, and you talk about what it means now to be a top end graduate and how they need to sort of conduct themselves and and um, some of the personality traits and so forth that they need to hold near and dear to their heart as they go out and, and do their thing. And uh, it's an hour-long lecture. I whirled into it as a CEO going, all right, I've done murder boards before. I can do this. This is easy. Uh, not too many slides. I think I had 23 slides in my lecture. You know, easy. And uh, no kidding, just like I did my first pre-board as a JO, they just ripped me apart in pre-board one. It did not matter that I was a CEO. They, they, the standards are the standards, and they were going to make sure I held them. Uh, so that was actually good to see, but uh, it, was, it was right back into it, even as an 05. So we, you and I talked about this a little bit when we were editing your uh, your article for proceedings. In, in Which some, is like the murder board process, exactly. Just <laughs> like the almost as hard, right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. In in a lot of the articles that came in, there was this uh, term, the bros, right? Mm-hmm. And we, we heard it on stage yesterday in the history of Top Gun, the Top Gun bros. And I asked you, okay, are there any sisters, right? Mm-hmm. Uh, have women? And and as we look around the floor here at, at Tailhook. Lots of VFA, lots of women wearing VFA patches, right? So strike yep. fighter women, yep. uh, both Wizzos and pilots. Yep. How many women have gone through the school? And do you have any women on your staff now? So we don't have any women on the staff right now. Um, we have had uh, female instructors that weren't aircrew on the staff in the, in the past. Uh, but we actually haven't had a female aircrew on the staff yet. Um, and, and that's not in because... In the history of in Top the Gun. history of Top Gun. And that's not because we haven't tried. Um, it... it a lot of times it comes down to colo. Maybe they're married to another service member and they co-location. just co-location. Yeah, yep. and, and fa- Fallon's a hard place. And Fallon's for a, a hard place. Yeah, yeah. Um, you know we uh, we we had a female come through. It was maybe my second class as a CO, and I will tell you that the entire staff wanted to keep her. She was, and I would put her in four years of four and a half years of being on the Top Gun staff in total of my time and seeing a number of classes go through and a number of graduates. I would put her in the top five that I've ever seen go through. I mean, she was fantastic in the airplane. She was a great teacher. She was a great debriefer. She could pull out the lessons learned better than most. Uh, and uh, But she, she had colo and uh, needed to stay out on the East Coast. So we, we haven't quite gotten there yet, um, but uh, it'll happen at some point, I'm sure. Well, going back to the yesterday's history panel, which was fascinating, 
you know, Sobs was talking about that they had all the fun. Yeah. Um, and that's sort of my Cat 1 tour when he and Bio and Hollywood Disart and, and Jaws when I felt, you know, they'd come out and do FARP. And, and that was the old days of, you know, two guys would go in an interdeployment training cycle. They'd get the patch. They'd come back and do one lecture. And that was it. Right. That was yeah. kind of. And so Top Gun only touched them. And so, yeah, you do a FARP, but there was kind of an attitude if you weren't a Top Gun graduate, you know, you weren't really, didn't feel like you really interfaced. And I, when we segued into Trim's part of it, and he's talking about the 90s, that's when I was a department head in CAG Ops. And I think the job was harder because the mission, the scope of it widened. Yep. And as we're talking about, those were the early days of, yeah, you'd have a black shoe there. And you'd be dealing with the Hilo squadron and all kinds of stuff. And now you're integrated with what was called NSOC at the time. Mm -hmm. So, you know, I I know what what Sobes meant when he said they had all the fun. Um, But I think that's kind of a bad rap because the the mission changed so so dramatically um, at some some level um, that it wasn't just a flying club. You know, when you're the flying club at Miramar... And yeah, there was rigor, and it was there were standards and so forth. But the scope was so narrow was compared f- to what you do now. Yeah. F- five weeks versus twelve weeks. Right? Yeah. Yeah. yeah, yeah. And there wasn't a Swifty program, and, and you know it just it wasn't as comprehensive as what N seven does now. Not yeah. to mention what Strike does. You know, so what, when he said that, what were you? What was your reaction? Uh, I, I thought actually that's about right. Yeah, yeah. In the eighties, I mean, that was certainly a good time flying uh, with Top Gun out of Miramar. I mean, that was the golden era, I think, for Navy fighter aviation. Um, but uh, yeah, uh, well, the other thing is the, the Tomcat was not doing air to mud at that time, and it wasn't. Yeah, right? yeah, so it was, it was in, all Soviet threat and air to air. Yeah, yeah, and not to say that they didn't have big problems. They did back then, um, and big challenges that they were dealing with. But you know, it was it was a little simpler because it was mostly air to air that they were they were focused on. Uh, whereas today, we're not only focused on air to air, air to ground, but we're focused on. Uh, very specific mission sets within those big mission sets that we're trying to teach guys through. Uh, today, we're, we're teaching C, suppression of enemy air defenses in the top gun class. Um, and that's never been done. That's something that's been new in the last two years, but that's a mission set that we have to get ready for because we look down range and see what's coming in future conflicts. So how much variety in, in, in performance quality at the beginning of Air Wing Fallon are you seeing from Air Wing to Air Wing? Because I remember back in the day, that was an issue. This is yeah. pre-Swifty. Yep. Standardization per squadron per air wing was a wide variety, great yeah. variance. So how, how are you, you know, what's the, what's the nominal level per air wing now? Is there a wide variety? I mean, how, how's that going? Uh, I, I, not really, not too much. You know, standardization is, is I think, a key piece of our culture these days. Um, so we don't see too much of a variety as far as when the air wings come in and they start executing. We do see some that are a little bit more prepared on day one. So they're doing better for the first week or two. Uh, but typically, what, what's that a function of? Uh, it, it could be a number of factors. It could be how did their maintenance phase look in terms of how many jets that they have in their squadron that, that they could fly on any given day. You know, uh, we've had squadrons that came through that had six up airplanes in the maintenance phase, and they're getting a lot of training out. So they're starting the uh, the FRP at a much higher level already, where there have been some squadrons where we've broken down because we're trying to support force uh, air wings downrange, and they may have had one or two up airplanes on the flight line, and, and they're just not getting some of that training. So we're really trying to catch them up as they go through the advanced readiness program, ultimately get themselves to air wing. We're still trying to catch them up. Um, I mean, so are you seeing COs that are more tactically focused than some others, and yes. CAGs that are more? Yeah. Oh, yeah. Is that, a, is that a variable? And that, that is a big, too? big piece of it. Yeah. The, uh, you know, ha- having done a, a fleet command tour, I will tell you that 
there are a number of things that will pull you away from being tactical focused if you're not cautious about it. So you really have to go into the job going, my job is to ensure the air wing and the CSG has the assets they need to project power. And I'm solely focused on getting ready for combat operations. And when you when you stay focused on that, you can develop your team that is ready to go and focus. If you're not focused on that, you'll you'll pawn off on something else that, that the Navy will distract you with if you're not cautious with, and, uh, and you won't prepare your team for it. And so certainly leadership and really combat-focused leadership is, is a key element and key driver to how well an air wing is going to do from a CAG level standpoint or a squadron is going to do from a squadron CO standpoint. So we're running a little out of time, but... I want to ask you one question because I, I, there was a hint yesterday that you might have some insights into Top Gun, the movie, too. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> were you, uh, was your command, was, uh, was the school part of, of making the movie? Were you guys advisors to it? Yeah. Uh, where, how, did, how did that work out? Uh, yeah, so I got a, a phone call early last year in 2018. Uh, saying, hey, were you aware that we're doing this movie thing and it's Top Gun 2? Was this from Paramount or who, who, who called you? This was from the, the technical director. West? No, no, it was oh, okay. actually from the technical director at the time. It was uh, Captain Retired uh, Chaser Keithley. And, uh, <laughs> Chaser Keithley. Yeah. Just one and, random Chaser Keithley. Yeah. Yeah. And so he, he called me up out of the blue. He says, hey, are you aware they're doing this? And like, no, Chaser, I have no idea. And so he's like, okay, you need to be in on this and Top Gun needs to be a part of this. And, and so we started the initial conversations and as I was looking at it, um, I started thinking, you know, the, the folks that are going to fly in this movie need to be Navy lieutenants. We need to highlight the JOs in this movie. And so, uh, so I, you know, I, I kind of built upon that idea and went, well, I want to highlight the staff as well. I want to highlight the JOs on the Top Gun staff. And so I kind of went on a mission where I wanted to get as many of my guys flying in the movie. I wanted to get as many guys out of Lamore flying in the movie as we could just because it was all being filmed on the West Coast and um, and get those guys flying. So I, my, my role was more of a technical director kind of aspect of it and just sort of coordinating it, making sure they got the assets they need, and then just trying to pull the pull the Top Gun instructors who were just laser-focused on, you know, doing their job in Top Gun and go, hey, just for, give me two hours, give me a day, whatever it is, go go get in this movie, go fly in this movie, trust me, your family's going to love it later, your kids are going to love it later, your grandchildren 50 years from now are going to love it, just go do this. And and uh, God bless them, it was hard to pull them out of doing their job and put them in this movie. Uh, but but they got there and they saw it at the end, but uh, it was uh, it was a cool experience and I think we got a total of uh, 24 of the, the bros flying in the movie. Um, we got a ton of uh, lieutenants out of Lamore flying in the movie as well, and and uh, it just in my mind it couldn't have been couldn't have turned out better than that. So that's great. I, you, I know you probably if you knew you probably couldn't say, but do you know what it's about? I mean, is it is are you satisfied that it's not? My fear is it's going to be like Mission Impossible meets Top Gun One. Yeah, right. Yeah, I, I, I've you know that's the snow scenes with the Tomcat and. I don't know. I, I just, I, I just, I don't want it to be hokey. Right? Yeah. I mean, obviously, Top Gun One had hokey dialogue, but the scope of the story was pretty much within what may happen in real life. Yeah. Right. Yeah. And I'm afraid this one's going to be a little over the top. Yeah. Um, you know, Joe Kaczynski, the the director, when we did the initial meeting for it, his his vision was it, well, he wanted it to be as realistic as possible. Uh, to include the storyline and the flying as realistic as possible. And, you know, certainly we're not going to go out there and show the world what tactics we execute. So we were very cautious from an operational security standpoint. Um, but he, he wanted to make it realistic. Um, and so we did work closely with him on the storyline. Uh, there were a lot of back and forth iterations. There were things that 
um, you know, Hollywood wanted to do that we would say, yeah, you can't really do that from a Navy standpoint or you can't do that from a Top Gun standpoint. That's not within our ethics or uh, doesn't really represent our culture uh, in the right light. And so we, we, there was a lot of back and forth, some headbutting at times over the storyline, but I think we got to a good storyline. Um, and then the flying itself is going to be, I think, not having seen the, the first cut yet, um, the, the flying is going to be incredible. I think it's going to put the audience in the cockpit with the pilots. Uh, and you're going to feel what it's like to no kidding fly and Navy fighters. So I think it'll be good in the end. Yeah. Awesome. awesome. Well, That's Pops, exciting. All right. Yeah, Pops Papayano, thanks for stopping by the podcast and, yes, the, sir. and the, the Naval Institute booth and for writing for Proceedings and, and hope that you'll uh, tell JOs out there that Proceedings is the place to put their ideas. Yeah, you know? absolutely. And, uh, we, we want more of them and we want them to know that Naval Aviation is always home in uh, in proceedings magazine and yeah. uh, so thanks again for writing for us thanks for all that you do out here in, in fallon and uh, we look forward to hearing more from you in the future yeah well thank you jens thanks for having me all right victory begins at the naval institute we'll catch you again tomorrow with episode five from tailhook proceedings podcast is brought to you by northrop grumman Northrop Grumman applies electromagnetic maneuver warfare to seamlessly target and combat enemy threats across any domain. By leveraging traditional spectrum-based and next-generation innovations, they're giving your forces a decisive advantage. That's why they're a leader in transformative airborne EW. To learn more, visit northropgrumman.com EW.